The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I remember my first office. I had just become a writer at Fortune, and the office was the reward. It had a window that looked out on Rockefeller Center and a glass door that slid closed, and I thought it was a good first step. I'd grow more senior. In time, I'd get a bigger office, closer to the editor-in-chief. Well, that first part happened. I became a senior writer, and then I left for another magazine in a more senior role. But my office, well, Fortune is as fancy as it ever got. My next office was smaller, and it didn't have a window. Then I moved to a cubicle. By then, I did most of my work on a laptop or a phone. Here at LinkedIn, I have a white desk that transforms into a standing desk when I push a button. I sit between two guys I like a ton, but we don't see each other that much because we are constantly ducking into conference rooms or phone booths or going down to the cafe to get our work done. And that first office seems like a lifetime ago. To be honest, I don't even miss it. But I can't believe how much has changed. So this week, I hosted Liz Burrow. She's the vice president of workplace strategy at WeWork. She studies the way we use space and pushes businesses to use it in new ways. And mostly, I wanted to know from her, are open offices here to stay? Here's Liz. So I want to start by asking you what your office looks like. In our headquarters in New York, we are a living lab and we're testing out new ideas of how people work. And just recently, we decided as a location to give up our desks. And that sounds really scary to a lot of people. And a lot of people were afraid of that even at WeWork. But we replaced that idea with a team home. So we have this team home concept, which means every team that could be anywhere from 8 to 30 people has a very long table that is theirs. And it's a permanent location that they can come to and meet. And then we have other kinds of work settings that are available to everyone. So it's this very much about equity and abundance. We have an area where you can have an ergonomic workstation with an enormous screen you can hook into. You have nooks. You have phone booths. You have a library, actually two libraries where you can be quiet. We have lounges and cafes. And we have project spaces that you can book. So if you need to, like, nest somewhere for a while, you can have that. So if I roll into work at WeWork and I'm part of your team, there is a table where I can loosely expect to find most of my peers who are there that day milling around, but nobody has a place to put that photograph of their kids slash dog slash favorite thing. Right. We don't have assigned desks anymore. And the identity of yourself and the identity of your team is allowed like within your team home. So different teams decorate in different ways. But all those personal effects basically go in your backpack or on your computer. And the point is basically a sort of like, this is where you get to have your personal moment of expression. Yeah, exactly. We talk a lot about identity and expression. And I think it's really hard for people to imagine letting go of that personal space and those personal effects and even paper Yeah, let's just back up to, like, how your team members responded. Were people uniformly psyched about it? No, never. I mean, no one's ever uniformly excited about any office change, like, even and even within WeWork. You know, people are just on different points of an innovation curve. 
team home worked for some people um, better than others, and they were more or less excited. Even the way that we rolled it out wasn't all the same. Some teams still need privacy and confidentiality. So we took some teams like HR, legal, security, and we put them in like the equivalent of a 16-person office. So they're still collaborative and team-oriented, but they have four walls around them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like the idea of like a, a private office for many people. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I know that I have heard that this works in a sort of pendulum fashion. And I'm wondering if there's going to be a swing back, if we're going to go back from tables as a concept to offices with doors that close. I definitely think that introverts are fighting back. And, you know, that that started with the, the publication of Quiet. I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah. book. Uh, Quiet by Susan Cain. But she really led this charge of the introvert like quietly speaking up for their rights. One manifestation of that was we need spaces to focus. We're not always going to be about collaboration, but we're going to express ourselves in different ways and contribute in different ways. And yeah, I mean, I I definitely think in the future, we're going to see a wide variety of solutions for a wide variety of different work styles and work needs. There's all sorts of positive effects of having a private office. And I'm sure as a writer, you know, you're like, I need that space. That's where I do my power work. But there's a give and take between that and A, what everyone else is getting, and B, the overall aspiration of what the business is trying to do. So we're trying to look at, you know, your work is so important and to do it most effectively and efficiently is something that we really care about. But we're also trying to look at every square foot and make sure that it matters in the most significant way. So... What we're going to see is a lot more flexibility in the footprint, both in terms of the length of a lease as well as how you use the space inside of a, an office. So, for example, you might have a private office, but when you're not there, it flips into a meeting room. And that way it's used more often. And so we're getting more – we're leveraging that square footage in a right. more positive way. Well, and WeWork is in this interesting position because you have so much office space – around the world, and you are able to gleam information about how people are using that space in real time. Are you already doing that? Yeah. So a great example for like real-time feedback is meeting rooms. Everyone can relate to a meeting room. It's something you need to book. Hopefully your company has an online booking system. But at WeWork, we can book meeting rooms on our app. So we on the back end can see what is the most popular space being used. And then in future locations, we can open up and make sure we have the right skew mix of the size of the rooms and and where they are in the floor plates. But also as a, a member, immediately after your meeting, you can rate your meeting room experience just like an Uber app, you know, rating rating your driver. So anything under three stars allows you to give a comment, and those comments come in on a weekly basis. And we have a team that's sifting through that and using pattern recognition to see where there's a theme that's emerging. And if it's like everyone doesn't like this room because the technology doesn't work or the wallpaper is weird, we can immediately fix it. Right. And I assume that would help you get away from a problem that I have experienced many times in my career where, like, you, you do not have enough places for six people to get together. But that executive conference room for 25 people who get together once a quarter is mostly always empty. Like, what do you do about that? So 
That's a really good example of something we see, especially with our enterprise clients that we've been working with. And we're, we're looking into their current space, which might be 20 years old. I think 20 years ago, everyone's like, we need enormous conference rooms. That's what we need. So there's a ton of that inventory. And then you see two people meeting in that space. So I don't know if you know this, but like the most popular size meeting is two to four people. All right, we're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, we hear from LinkedIn's news editor, Andrew Murfitt, on a brief history of office design. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. This week, we're joined by LinkedIn's news editor, Andrew Murfitt. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Jesse. It's awesome to be here. I reported on WeWork this spring, and all the WeWork employees I spoke to at their HQ in New York City really seem to buy into the recent trend in which we've moved beyond the open plan office to almost the concept of a shared office. But how did we get to open office plans in the first place? Well, it's interesting because many companies initially touted them as a way to increase collaboration between workers. But most experts seem to agree that the reason companies have persisted with open plan offices is ultimately because they're cheaper. And that's why 70% of American offices are now open plan. Also, existing offices have gotten much smaller. Just 10 years ago, a standard office used to be 225 square feet, and that's just smaller than a one-car garage. Now, on average, it's 150 square feet. And in some co-working spaces, it's as little as 45 square feet. 45 square feet. So that's about the size of, I don't know, a king-size bed. Yep. And companies are responding to office design trends in different ways, too. Now, GE actually has replaced its headquarters in Boston. And that was known for its cavernous spaces and huge parking lots with title cards attached to them and silent hallways where everyone would tiptoe around. Now they've got open plan desks, no parking spaces, because they want to encourage employees to use public transport. That's a big change. Huge. And then there's also Boston Consulting Group, and they followed a similar route with their new offices in Hudson Yards. And they're encouraging staff to get out of their individual offices and eliminate doors and pillars and employ a hybrid open plan design that simulates social interaction. And if you go back and look at the photos from the start of what we now consider the modern office, Many clerical workspaces back then looked like cavernous warehouses as well, with workers packed to the rafters and they sat cheek by jowl with their colleagues. After that came the advent of individual offices, which was so well depicted in the series Mad Men, actually. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, office cubicle culture took over. And cubicles themselves ended up spawning a massive backlash because most workers found them depressing and creatively stifling, which is sort of how we got where we are now with open plan offices. And it seems funny to think back, but it wasn't that long ago that open plan offices were considered hip and a buzzy way to shed the baggage of cubicles. It's crazy to think about, given that study after study tells us that workers don't like open office plans. Has that played out in your reporting? Yeah, very much so. They despise them, actually. But companies like them because they think they simulate face-to-face conversations and improve productivity. But the negative reaction has also led to companies like GE having to ask their staff to employ indoor voices and build more quiet rooms into office designs. Yeah, I can relate to that. 
And this is something I want to hear from our listeners about, too. Does your office work for you? Tell us why. Send a voice memo to LinkedIn at HelloMonday.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag HelloMonday. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jesse. Now back to my conversation with Liz Burrow. Liz, and I should say, when I visited you a couple of days ago, there were some couches, there were some tables, there was a coffee bar with a long line. And it feels to me like you guys are even thinking about how to design the right level of buzz, sort of like a nightclub design. Exactly. Yeah, we do. And I think people don't give us a lot of credit for that, but everything about that sequence of events has been really thought through. So every time you come off an elevator, you come into a center of gravity. So that's always your first impression is the community social space. You're greeted by the community bar. Someone there is your concierge making sure that you're taken care of. You're smelling fresh coffee. You're hearing music. You're hearing people at at kind of a nice buzz conversation level. You can see like a, a place to grab coffee, grab water, all of those viewpoints, all of those those abilities to see different kinds of settings and have amenities at your fingertips, that's like very well curated. And we think a lot about and we borrow a lot from retail and hospitality and restaurant design to like create that energy and that vibe. And it's really hard to put your finger on, but people come in and they say, yeah, I just want this. Like, can you make that for me? How do you program an environment that actually works for everyone or at least most people? So I think you have to start from a perspective of we need to solve for a lot of different personalities and work styles. And we also need to think about what's happening with work, again, at a a macro level. So just to lay down a couple of things that we think about a lot, one is this idea of autonomy and choice. The future of work is going to be about letting people make their own decision about where to work, how to work. Um, It doesn't mean that management necessarily is going away, but it's just that you are the architect of your own destiny and you'll decide on what your favorite seat is. Yeah, I think we need to to manage for that. And I think the next generation of the workforce is going to reinforce that idea of autonomy and choice. I think the other idea is distributed work. So at a world level, we're, you know, we're already seeing a lot of that. There's no more this idea of like, I'm a remote worker and you work in HQ. We're all distributed. You can choose when to come in or a decision is made like when it's best to be in person and show up versus when you can stay home and be more productive or be in another space, which could be like a member space. Well, there's another piece that I think about when I think about space, which is traditional hierarchy in workplaces. And it was often established by the space you got in its proximity to the manager. And there was a piece of that that was just a guarantee of FaceTime. How is traditional power reinforced or busted up by the way we use physical space? Yeah. You've touched on, like, one of my nerd points. I, like, love talking about this. I wish I had, like, a really strong solution for it. But the thing that we talk a lot about at WeWork is the difference between an org chart and a social network. And if you mapped both of those, it's not the same thing. And, you know, we've never done this, but we think it would be really cool to design an office off of a social network mapping exercise. So looking at, like, where nodes of influence are, because it isn't necessarily mapped to an org chart. And what would that mean? Would you put a social node in the middle to be more visible? Um, And that could be like the executive administrator. Like that could be the node that everyone's working through. Right. As well as um, utilization. So 
a lot of I think what's interesting in terms of this idea of like symbolically giving someone who's reached a certain title in a company, a private office or a bigger private office is it's a symbol of power and importance, which means a lot to some people. But that shouldn't be confused with like the need to have private conversations or confidential conversations. You know, and I think often the two are conflated. Will there be new symbols of power and importance that we will look to over time? I would love a world where we were able to help everyone meet their personal needs at work. And also the business would say, like, yeah, this is a really good use of space and human resources, because those are the two biggest costs of a company or internal costs of a company. And so, you know, and I, I love having the founders of the company, like Miguel, who doesn't really have an office. He wanders around and sits at a desk like everyone else, or my my boss has a dedicated office, but it's a meeting room setup. And so he uses it as a meeting space. And then if he's if he's doing focus work, he's just out there with everyone else in the team home. I mean, one of the data points that we find really interesting in private office use is it's pretty low utilization. So it's often like 20%. Because if you think about people who are in positions of management and leadership, they're often in meetings. Right. So they're somewhere else. Or they're just having their team meeting in their office. All right, we're taking a quick pause here. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Now back to my conversation with Liz Burrow. My experience of an open office, for example, here at LinkedIn is, you're right, I am a writer, and that means I need a couple of quiet hours most days. Some days I need like nine quiet hours. And for that, we have a quiet library it's sort of like back at college, yeah. that room you went into where nobody was allowed to talk to you. Exactly. We have a whole room for that. Yeah. And we have these little alcoves for conversations that need to happen with other people but don't need to happen behind a closed door. Mm-hmm. And then we have nooks and we have these little phone booths. Mm-hmm. I probably have 12 options other than where I'm sitting and I can choose. Do you like it? Do I like it? I mean, I love it. Because it actually feels like somebody has thought about the way that I might need to work and given me the space. The one challenge is that it's really tough for the space to keep up with the people. Like, Mm. you know, my team happens to have grown a lot in the last year. We're sharing space with another team that's grown a lot. And suddenly the rooms can't keep up with us in real time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting insight. And you're one of the first writers I've heard, like, very accepting of something other than a a private office space to work in or missing your big walled cubicles. Again, we talk a lot about what's the motivation and then what's the behavior we want to encourage and then what space can support that. 
And there's two different ways that I like to think about it. One is the space, the technology, and the services that you have should be like a safety net. It should always be catching you, and it should feel like an abundance, not a scarcity, that like I'm someone's trying to take something away from you, but you can always find what you need. And that the office is an organism, and it's learning, and it's evolving with you. And the other is that the office is nudging you into positive behavior. So spaces are embodied and coded with encouraging behaviors like a place for two people to quietly have a conversation. Or we've done research and we found out the most popular way to eat is side by side, like at a diner counter. So we have a lot of those in our lounge spaces because we want to encourage and we want to support that behavior. So uh, recently, there was a a good example is um, in London, people were trying to be in phone booths all day long. And they were asking if they could book the phone booth as an as a private office for the day. So they start the community managers like, let's just try it out. Like, let's experiment and see if like this is actually a business model to like book these little four by four foot spaces. And ultimately, we said, you know, this this maybe isn't encouraging the right behavior. We don't want to kind of be um, like a vertical. It seems slightly inhumane. But people were really, like, really interested in hacking into our phone booths and, like, they just wanted to camp out there all day. And we were like, okay, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. I'm I'm still stuck on, well, what do you think they really wanted? And were you able to give them the thing that they really wanted? Well, we find phone booths are some of our most popular space types because people – I think, really appreciate being able to quickly tuck into a space for private phone conversation, especially if if you if you haven't been assigned a private office. You know, like anyone who works in an office has seen people try to take phone calls in a hallway, in the stairwell, right, in the lobby, pacing up and down. And like this is like one solution is to put them in a in a place that has is sealed. They can have a private conversation. They can sit down. They can open up their laptop. But you always need to nudge people out of those spaces because they they just want to be there all the time. I spend a lot of time in the phone booth. It's cozy, has a plug and a stool. Yeah, I think it's also a little bit about human behavior. So one of our our human needs is to nest and to remove ourselves from the noise, you know, to to kind of like this pod mentality. And that's a, you know, you could call it the womb or whatever, but like that's actually like a human need as well as this idea of prospect. So we we want to stand and be able to look out and see a view. So we often talk about in workplace design that people have a right to light. We should give the most people the most access to natural light and to views because as a human, you need to break away from near sight and look long distances. So um, these are things that are sort of like embodied in us because over many, many thousands of years of evolution, you know, if you can imagine we were on planes looking for lions, you know, we wanted to look out onto the landscape as well as like look near. This idea of like if you're looking out, you want to be protected from behind. So like this cave environment that you don't want to have something attacking you from right. from behind. A lot of these ideas are a part of a um, a term called biophilia, where you're trying to tap into these like deeper human needs and respond to them. And again, it has to do with you know, like at the surface level, we're like, I just need to write a report. Like, what are you talking about? But like how you do that and how you feel safe and comfortable to do that is something I think we're trying to like dig into those 
those deeper human needs and make sure that like you can just find the best space to do that. I think also it's just a really interesting time. You know, it's it, a lot of people talk about the race for the best talent. So the, the workplace has to, like, offer you all these amazing perks. But we see, like, that's just scraping the surface. And what people really want is connection to purpose, connection to mission, connection to their colleagues. So I think, again, the space assignment might swing back and forth between a lot of space for individuals, less space for individuals, more space for the collective, more amenities, less amenities. What kind of perks can I give you that are physical or food or healthcare? You know, and I think that we'll just follow the economy. So if something happens differently with the economy, businesses will respond differently. But I think at the end of the day, and WeWork was born out of a recession, with this whole idea of like, well, if I just lost my job, I might as well do something I love, right? If I'm going to reinvent myself, maybe this is a space where I could rethink what I do and why I do it. And so we're always thinking deeper in terms of like, why do people show up to work? Why should they be excited about what they do? Hopefully they believe in what they're doing. They feel like their work is making a big impact on the world. And we want to make sure that we celebrate that. You know, a tech company should maybe be thinking about that, too. Like, what are they doing that's helping the world? The office environment, again, is just one manifestation of culture and purpose. And so hopefully it's sending the right message. But there's other levers and mechanisms to make sure a company expresses to its employees, we're trying to do something good for the world and we're trying to do something good for you. Again, that was Liz Burrow, Vice President of Workplace Strategy at WeWork. Liz may not be able to predict what the office of the future will look like, but her work will definitely shape it. Which brings me to our listener question. Does your office work for you? I want to hear from you. So send a voice memo to hellomonday at linkedin.com or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag hellomonday. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. And join me next week for a conversation with Carolyn Everson. She's in charge of marketing at Facebook. We'll talk about what it was like for her to get fired from a company that she started early in her career. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim with reporting by Andrew Murphitt. The show was mixed by Joe DeGiorgi. Florencia Iriando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. A special thanks this week to listener Somia Dave, a psychiatrist and author who sent a voice memo about how she comes up with ideas after listening to our episode with Tim Brown. The way I think of new ideas is by taking a walk and being outside in nature, reading different things, and also doing nothing, because as important as it is to be productive, I also think it's really important to teach ourselves to do nothing at all. Our music was by Poddington Bear and Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening. So I'm curious, before you got into the working world, when you chose your space to work, were you a person who liked to be in a cafe with a lot of noise around you? you Yeah, I love to sit in a buzzy cafe in a comfy couch alone with others. So I love that energy and buzz of just kind of like ambient sound. I love to sit cross-legged, especially when I was pregnant. I just wanted to like sit on a big couch. <laughs> um, and my husband's always like, how are you getting work done on a couch when he's at a at our desk at home? 
And it's just like, it's just my jam. You know, that's where I, because I'm like, I'm sort of working. I trick myself. I'm like, I'm not really working. I'm like resting on the couch. Oh, the I'm not really working bit. 